0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Sunday service. It's for those of you who have not lived in the community for 40 years. This is what the weather used to be like when we first came here. It would rain for weeks and weeks on end. And so this is kind of memories of a lost love. (laughs) We have a a special treat today at the end of Sunday service, at the end of the festival. Uh, We're going to do a baptism for there are many beautiful new souls that have decided to bless us with their presence in this community. So we'll be doing a baptism for uh, many of the new babies here. So we hope you can stay. It'll be right after the festival. So our topic this week is both subtle and yet very beautiful and powerful. One of the most beautiful passages of all the Gita. And it is, Did God create the universe or become it? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda In the Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, contains a passage that explains the essential truth that creation is a process of becoming. The universe is not separate from God the Creator, but a part of Him, even as our own dream creations during sleep are figments of our own consciousness. God's is the life God's the reality not a melody composed nor a poem written were the melody and the poem not already there simply waiting to be expressed in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not Ego-directed desire is like static. It distorts the radioed messages of infinity. But the pristine impulse from the divine, undistorted by limitation and delusion, is the life that gives rise to all that is. As the seventh chapter of the Bhagavad Gita states, I am the fluidity of water. I am the silver light of the moon and the golden light of the sun. I am the Om chanted in all the Vedas, the cosmic sound moving as if silentlessly, silently through the ether. I am the manliness of men. I am the good sweet smell of the moist earth. I am the luminescence of fire. The sustaining life of all living creatures. I am self offering in those who would expand their little lives into cosmic life. O oh, Arjuna, know me as the eternal seed of all creatures. In the perceptive, I am their perception. In the great, I am their greatness. In the glorious, it is I who am their glory. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. O
1: Good morning, everyone. So, since we're contemplating origins this morning, origin of the universe, I thought it would be fitting to read the origin of Master's Whispers from Eternity. So I'm going to read the first two of these beautiful prayer poems or prayer demands. The first one is an English translation of a Vedic cosmic salutation and it reads as thus O Spirit I bow to Thee in front of me behind me on the left and on the right I bow to Thee above and beneath I bow to Thee all around me I bow to Thee within and without I bow to Thee everywhere for Thou art Everywhere. It's a very good practice as to repeat this, not necessarily just these words, although Master has empowered these words, and as I said, they come from the Vedas. But as we're walking, as we're doing whatever we're doing, if our mind isn't having to be focused on some one thing, try to feel. That we're walking in a bubble of creative force, in a bubble of spirit. It precedes us, it's behind us, it's to the left, it's to the right, it's above, it's beneath, it's within, it's without, it's everywhere. Try to actually feel that because when we connect with spirit, then everything begins to go well. When we disconnect, everything begins Not to go so well. And I'm going to read the second one because it then begins to personalize this. This is We demand of thee as thy children. Thou art the Father. We are made in thine image. We are thy children. We neither ask nor pray as beggars, but demand of thee as thy children the gifts of wisdom, salvation, health, happiness, and eternal joy. Whether naughty or good, we are still thy children, all of us. Help us to perceive and understand inwardly thy will for us. Teach us the independent use of our human will since thou gavest it to us to use freely, attuned to thy wisdom-guided will. Those are two great, great, prayer demands so this topic this morning did God create the universe or become it when you hear the title it sounds I don't know a little stodgy a little like two dons of Cambridge sitting around with tweed coats and smoking pipes and one of them says well Chesterton what do you think Did God create the universe or did he become it? And they have this intellectual discussion about it. And so it seems at first glance a little bit obtuse, maybe not so meaningful. But in fact, it's absolutely central to our whole approach to life, to God, to existence. You know, there are probably three great metaphysical questions that people everywhere contemplate the first is does God exist and if so what is he like is there life after death and are kittens cuter than puppies (laughs) (laughs) on those three questions hang everything else now I don't think master addressed the final question Sufficiently he left it to the internet to do that (laughs) But the first two he did in fact Address not only once but very very deeply So does God exist see on these questions kind of the division lines In human thinking uh, The fault lines one might say are created so does God exist Or doesn't exist. That fault line divides the atheists from the people who believe that there's something more than just randomness in the whole of creation. So my father was one of the atheists. And so I grew up with him thinking that somehow life came into existence... And we as human beings, we lived this one life, and then after we died, we simply ceased to exist. There was nothing, nothing at all after life. It was, could be like a rock, you know. You have a rock, it has its certain lifetime, it gets pulverized, ceases to be a rock, and doesn't exist as a rock anymore. So that very materialistic kind of consciousness and unfortunately science has a leaning in that direction of pushing away the possibility of consciousness in creation there's a joke that goes with a scientist saying to God so I don't know how he is an atheist in the first place but At any rate, he says, we no longer have any need for you, you know. We now can create life in the laboratory. We just take some soil and we manipulate it, and in that is everything we need. And God says, well, that's very interesting. Let's have a little contest. You create life and I'll create life and we'll see who can do it faster. And the scientist says, Okay, well, give me some dirt. God says, no, go get your own. <laughs> so science, science is pretty good at working with reality. I say pretty good as, you know, fuzzy around the edges. But at working with reality after creation, after maya comes into existence. Even the whole fundamental scientific thought of how the world, how the universe was created, is most people, most scientists accept what's called the Big Bang Theory, which is that at the beginning, everything that was going to become the universe was packed together in a really tight little thing, and then it exploded, and from that explosion you know, created... Heat and energy and then out of that came the subatomic particles and then the atoms formed and the atoms form everything else. Well, there, the mathematics and the thinking and the physics works pretty well going back to that point of origin. But the point of origin, even mathematically, they need to postulate... That everything in the universe was not just packed together tightly like you might imagine. Though everything in the universe, every particle, everything of subatomic atoms, everything was packed into this room. Smaller than that. Packed into the size of a period at the end of a sentence. Smaller than that. It has to be what's called a singularity. So it's zero space. Zero So we have to imagine for this to work that everything is packed into that singularity. And then it explodes from that. And then once it explodes, then all the mathematics and the physics begin to work. But that singularity, that to me is a little fuzzy around the edges. So at any rate, without delving into that, there is the sense among many people that the universe somehow came into being without consciousness behind it. And then all of the laws of the universe kind of run out from that. And so mankind then somehow comes out of a primordial soup. You know, life comes out of that randomly. It kind of self-evolves and the mechanism generally accepted by scientists of Darwinian evolution allows life to evolve into more and more complex forms. But theres it's basically random. It has to do with variations and transmutations and uh, genetic properties and mutations. But there's no purpose to it all. It just is there. And given that, there's no ultimate purpose to our lives well that's on one side the other side believes that there is consciousness behind the universe and that consciousness either created it or it became that but but coming back to this purposeless kind of existence the scientists have a kind of a bias against any creative force behind it, intelligent force behind it. So if you're a scientist coming out of with a doctorate and you're working on evolution or physics or any of those questions, if you try to publish a paper that talks about the consciousness behind creation, you won't be able to publish that paper, you won't be able to find a job, you won't have a career... And so there's there's this bias but moving against that bias you can use the same mechanisms but if there's purpose to those mechanisms then it all begins to come into place so master talked about evolution evolution is not wrong it's that there's a direction to evolution and we talk about this every week in the festival. So I'm going to just read that passage. This is Swami talking about evolution. And it says, Ever and again, through your awakened suns, the answer comes. The forming of stars and moons and planets, of galaxies revolving on the tides of space, of drifting continents, upheaving mountains, snowy wastes and dark silent ocean deeps, had but this for its design, the birth of life. And with life's birth, the dawn of self-awareness, passage through dim corridors of waking consciousness to emerge at last into infinite light, into perfect joy. And so, that's the poetic description of directed evolution. That all of this All of the cosmos has a reason behind it. And that reason is the increase, first of all, of life, the conditions for which life needs to have to exist, and then the birth of life, and then the passage through dim corridors of waking consciousness. You think of everything from, you know, the lowest amoeba up to the wisest man, There's a dim corridor, a long corridor of waking consciousness. And that the birth of self-awareness. So if you have the purpose of the universe being to increase in self-awareness, then you have a purpose to everything. And the purpose to everything, all our actions, all of the universal forces are there in order to gradually drive us to greater and greater self-awareness. Until, where does that self-awareness, finally does it have an end point? Well, in a sense it has the end point. Because if God created us with that self-awareness out of himself, then like a big circle, the beginning and the end... Is at the same point. The beginning is the consciousness of God. And there's this big circle that goes out. And it returns back. To the consciousness of God. And so that big circle. Is that long long corridor. Of awakening of self consciousness. Now so if there's a purpose to life. If there's a purpose to creation. Then we come back to the question. Well did God create the universe or did he become it and again that sounds a little esoteric but it it's fundamentally important because it divides the first of all there's the atheism and the believers then the believers are kind of split into two camps and so in the one camp is the concept of god the creator creating the universe much like a potter might create a pot, but that pot is separate from the potter. It's never going to be like the potter. And so you have Michelangelo, you know, that's the Judeo-Christian model of the universe. You have Michelangelo painting that for us. So God is up in the heavens and creation is down below And God is giving life to mankind. And he's reaching down to Adam and touching him with the finger. And that's the birth of life of mankind. But that creation, man, we, in that model are separate from God. And we can never aspire to become like God because we're always separate. And so even in that model, there's only one begotten son... Of God, and we can aspire to believe in that one begotten Son, and we can, in that belief, we can be saved. And after death, if there is an after death, then we go to heaven. If we don't believe, then we go to hell, and we exist eternally somehow in either heaven or hell. Now, if we Go there in anything like our physical body, frankly, there isn't much difference between heaven and hell. I mean, imagine you know the image of the angels playing harps on the clouds, and we're somehow enjoying that beautiful celestial music, and heaven is like, I don 't know, an expanded Hawaiian vacation. Everything is beautiful. Everything is wonderful. Well, that's good for a couple of weeks. Maybe it's good for a year. But after a while, doesn't that begin to seem a little bit boring? Because the scope of consciousness is still contained in that model inside a kind of egoic egoic consciousness. And so that scope just isn't big enough to hold eternity. So after a month or two or a year or two, I would imagine getting so bored because if we bring our ego with us, it's like Mark Twain said, I would love to take a vacation, but I can never take one because that fellow Twain always comes along. (laughs) So if we go to heaven, that egoic sense comes along with us. And that ego is the creation of limitation. And that limitation is hell. So I don't see much difference between heaven or... Well, one, you get tortured forever. (laughs) And the other, you don't. So there definitely is some difference. But, But metaphysically here, we're talking about, you know, that... That is actually quite a limited concept in in my mind. And it works when we have a world that is small enough in scope. You know, when Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel, the earth was all there it was that existed really metaphysically in mankind. So you can think of God as the creator of the earth and everything on it. But when you have a trillion galaxies and each of those galaxies contains billions and trillions of stars, and each of those stars now they're thinking that at least half of those planet, half of those stars have planets around them and most of the many of those planets are sub are capable of having life. When you have that kind of a scope that one god with his finger touching adam doesn't work anymore the universe is much much vaster than that and so that concept of heaven and hell of god as the creator like a potter doesn't begins to break down but if it were only that you know that's what the two dons sitting there in cambridge could sit there and argue about did he Created or did he become it, but what so it's just two different belief systems that you can argue about but For those who feel that God became the universe There is the actual experience of The Saints who have experienced Samadhi so the end point of this long-directed evolution is to emerge at last into infinite light, into perfect joy. To emerge at last from this long corridor of waking consciousness into samadhi. And when we do that, we see that God didn't make the universe. He didn't make us. He didn't make creation or make even samadhi. He became that because we're part of his consciousness. And so it's the experience, the actual experience, that is the great divider. There's a fascinating book called I Was a Monk. And it was written, I don't know, in the 1920s or 30s. But it was a man named John Emertet, who was a contemporary of Master. And he was a fascinating man. He... Joined early on the Jesuit order and rose through the ranks and so much of the book part of the book is talking about the training and the practices of this very strict and very dedicated Catholic order, the Jesuits and he rose through the ranks until he became essentially the teacher of philosophy for the Jesuits and he lived in the Vatican and he taught the priests and so on, the philosophy of Christianity, and or churchianity. I should really talk about it because there is a difference. But at one point, he got ill with a lung disease, with uh, what tuberculosis. tuberculosis, and in those days the cure for tuberculosis was to send you to Switzerland where you stayed in a hotel, a spa, high in the mountains and breathed clean, cold air. So every day he would go out on the balcony with blankets and, and breathe. Well, he was a very interesting, very contemplative, very intelligent person, obviously. And as he did that, he basically had a many-month-long seclusion. And in that seclusion, he had the experience of cosmic consciousness. He had a samadhi experience. And he felt himself to be everything in the universe. And then, he had the dilemma, after coming out of sabhikalpa samadhi, coming out of that, did he go back... To his job as he began to recover and teach the philosophy that we were separate from God. That because God had created us, we were a separate order of being. But he had experienced the fact that that wasn't true. And so being a man of integrity, he ended up leaving the order. And he ended up, in fact, living out very close to 29 poems. And he was he was a hermit in the desert. And many of the actors and actresses of the time of Master would come and visit him. So I imagine that Master must have known of him and probably visited him. But I'm not sure of that. I, I, I'm just speculating. But at any rate, the point here being that once you have the experience of consciousness, which is where the whole Vedantic science, Vedantic teachings has come from. It hasn't come from a debate. It hasn't come from philosophy. It hasn't come from two dons, in this case, ancient Himalayan sages sitting there arguing about things. It has come from eventually increasing stillness of consciousness until the consciousness becomes still enough and deep enough and we realize who we are. And so that long corridor of waking consciousness, because that corridor, as Master said, this process, obviously, not everybody does it in one lifetime. And so if it is the destiny of everyone to achieve this level of consciousness to make that full circle once again then we need more than one lifetime and therefore we need reincarnation where we go progressively through many many stages of the awakening of self-awareness until that self-awareness becomes complete and total once again and so that's the long process Now, you and I, thinking of that circle, if we think of it as a clock, because we have the techniques of self-awareness, the techniques, and we have the great desire, think of that as a clock, we're on the last few ticks of the last minute of that long cycle. So don't despair. Maybe we're on the very last tick, And this lifetime is the last one. Maybe there are a handful more. But if we hold firm to these teachings and don't fall back into delusion, then when I mean these teachings, I don't mean the belief. I mean hold firm to the practices that give us that actual experience. And so if we continue... Then we're on the last few ticks. So what are the hallmarks that will help us achieve this great awareness that God became the universe, that he didn't create it, that God became us, he didn't create us, that we are an extension of God, and therefore our ultimate destiny is to realize that we're nothing but God and to come back into that great great self-awareness once again so what are the things that will move us along that path most quickly they really it really comes down to just two things one i've already mentioned which is we have now the keys of awakening as swami says in the festival we have these tools we have the practice of meditation. We have the techniques of life force control. We have the techniques of Kriya or the like techniques that allow us to still our minds, still the restlessness of thought which prevents us from perceiving ourselves as we are, to still that sufficiently so that we perceive ourselves. So those keys of awakening, the yogic science, meditation, and it isn't just on our path. I don't want to be sectarian. It is the stilling of, be still and know that you are God. And so it isn't belief. It's just the techniques that allow us to be still, to allow you to be still and know that you are God. So those techniques are... One, and the other, just two things are really needed. So, so w- one are the techniques of awakening, and the other is simply love. That's why Swami had this, this whisper, I mean, uh, affirmation on love, because it is love, not mind, not, not mental thought, not egoic consciousness see love is the force in the universal force that unites that which is separate into one and so all the great scriptures touch on this as it says as Christ said the first and great commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God love the Lord thy God with all thy heart means all your emotions, your likes and dislikes, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. Strength is life force. We have to unite. So bringing that life force together in of consciousness will unite us. But it's love that is the uniting force. And as Krishna says in the Gita, we read that beautiful passage where he talks about the he the see the avatars the great masters are not separate they're not different from us they're simply those souls who have realized that endpoint and have come to help us realize that endpoint so when they speak they aren't speaking as egos they're speaking as consciousness aligned with the consciousness of God in Nirbhukalpa Samadhi, in this great, vast awareness, but coming into human form. And so when they say, love me, they're really saying, love the God that is in me, that I'm demonstrating to you, who you really are. And so at the end of the Gita, Krishna goes through the whole teaching of the Gita and the things that we should do and the attitudes that we should have. And at the end he says, cling to me. Love me with all your heart. That's all you need. And that's the ultimate ultimate teaching of all scriptures is to love God. And that love combined with the practice of stilling the mind will help each of us realize that God became the universe. He became us, and our destiny is to reunite in that knowledge with him and perhaps to help others to do the same.